1: I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For weeks, protesters in the Czech Republic have gathered to demonstrate against the billionaire Prime Minister Andrej Babiš. He's under investigation for alleged misuse of European funds and sparked widespread anger after appointing a friendly justice minister when talk turned to indicting him. It's a tactic that appears to be on the rise in Eastern Europe. And when Russia seized Crimea from Ukraine in 2014, it coveted more than strategic ports. It also wanted control of the region's wine industry. But problems ranging from bottle shortages to sanctions are vexing vintners there. First up, though, In Israel, just last month, Benjamin Netanyahu was celebrating a strong showing by his Likud party in parliamentary elections. He had been forced to call an early poll as he faced a raft of corruption allegations. His victory seemed like a vote of confidence by the Israeli people, and he grinned as he greeted cheering crowds on election night. But all has not gone smoothly since. Israel has many political parties And Mr. Netanyahu has struggled to build the coalition he needs to form a government. He called publicly on one party leader, his former defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, to join him. Unfortunately, until this moment, including tonight, I didn't manage to convince Avigdor Lieberman to avoid elections. But whoever looks at the reality understands that we need to be responsible and form a government immediately. Those pleas failed.
2: So uh, a few minutes after midnight, the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, voted to dissolve itself.
1: Anshul Pfeffer reports from Israel for The Economist and recently wrote a book about Mr. Netanyahu.
2: And this is just 30 days after it was sworn in and seven weeks after the last election. And this is unprecedented in Israeli political history. And why has it been so difficult to to build a coalition? Netanyahu uh, proclaimed victory because his block of right-wing and religious parties had a majority of five seats in the Knesset. So it seemed that he had won. However, to to make that victory reality, he needed to get all those parties cooperating together in one coalition. And one issue, the issue of uh, the draft of yeshiva students students in in religious seminaries, proved so so contentious that one of the parties uh, demanded that a law... Uh, on this, uh, which had been already drafted in the previous Knesset, be passed as is, w- literally without changing a comma, while some of the religious parties in the coalition demanded major changes to the law. And Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, currently serving prime minister, who was very eager to begin his fifth term as prime minister, couldn't bridge those differences.
1: So, So what happens now?
2: So what should have happened last night at midnight was... With Netanyahu's deadline and the time allocated to him to form uh, the coalition up, someone else should have uh, received the opportunity to to form a coalition by Israeli law. But there was also there's also a clause in the law which has never been used, which specifies that if the Knesset is dissolved, the whole process of forming governments stops and the country goes back to the polls. And that is the clause that Netanyahu used, and therefore, in three and a half months, Israel will be holding another election.
1: And meanwhile, Mr. Netanyahu is under investigation on, on corruption allegations. How will that then play out in the, well, the, the current absence of a government and the potential for a different one?
2: Well, three of the investigations have already been wrapped up and the Attorney General has uh, tentatively decided to indict Netanyahu on bribery and fraud in, th- in in those three investigations. Most of Netanyahu's efforts over the last few weeks when he should have been trying to solve this problem between his coalition partners was trying to get the The parties to agree to vote on various uh, pieces of legislation which would grant him immunity from prosecution and would would shield him from any intervention of the high court in that decision that is now that has now been shelved those those uh, pieces of legislation are not going to go ahead, certainly not until the election and another government is formed assuming Danielle wins that next election and forms that government so he's lost a very valuable time for him, and in that time the hearing. Uh, hearings will, will proceed, and there's a chance that before the Attorney General decides to uh, to indict Netanyahu and, and to charge him in court for bribery, he uh, he won't have have put any legislation in place to shield him. Netanyahu has steadfastly uh, denied the allegations ever since the investigations began over three years ago. He said there's nothing in them, but step after step. It turned out that there is uh, some serious evidence here, which led to a formal investigation. But now he's instead of is uh, standing up in court against them. He's trying to evade any kind of indictment.
1: Um, you, you say that the situation is is unprecedented, and you know everyone would have expected that Mr. Netanyahu could have formed a government. Does the fact that he hasn't suggest that perhaps his rivals smell blood and are, are kind of positioning themselves for power?
2: Well, certainly uh, Avigdor Lieberman, the leader of a small. Nationalist secular party called Israel, Netanyahu, Israel, our home, who demanded that the that the law be passed, and that was the reason why there is no coalition. He certainly felt that he could challenge Netanyahu, and it seems that his calculation is that Netanyahu is is going down eventually, and therefore there's no reason for him to to be a member of his coalition. He's already staking out new ground in the right wing for the in the post Netanyahu era. He's he's the first major right wing politician in Israel to openly challenge Netanyahu in recent years, and there will be others who will follow him.
1: If there is this large group of of parties, um, why is Mister Lieberman, Lieberman ended up as the kingmaker here?
2: Well, there was a majority. Netanyahu's block of parties had a majority of five seats. Those five seats are what Lieberman's party has. Without those five seats, Netanyahu did not have a majority.
1: And what about the, the peace process? Jared Kushner is uh, is in the country with this U.S.-led plan in hand on, on solving Israeli-Palestinian issues, but there's no government for him to talk to.
2: Well, we've got used to the fact that the Trump administration is delaying and postponing the unveiling of its much-awaited peace plan. But now that finally the invitations have gone out to this uh, Peace to Prosperity workshop in Bahrain next month, I doubt that, that they'll Delayed once again due to the political turmoil in Israel. It's mainly, anyway, for the Americans to get together with the Arab regimes and work out some kind of economic plan. It's not yet the political stage of of the, of the Trump plan. If we ever get to that stage, that stage will, will probably be postponed due to the Israeli election.
1: Right. And how do you think the the election will go? Do you do you think that Mr Netanyahu will be able to form a co- coalition the next time around?
2: Netanyahu won an election. Two months ago, he didn't manage to take that victory and and, and turn it into a functioning government. But he, he got he won the right-wing and religious parties won a majority, which was not very, not a large one, but it was pretty clear. And it's, it's difficult to see the opposition overturning that at this point. But we're in uncharted territory now. We've never had a second election in in, in the same years, an election held just uh, only five months after the previous one. And there's also this new rift within the right wing. We have a, a right wing party basically saying that Netanyahu tried to form a government. He failed. And now we probably won't be supporting him in the future. So there's a certain shift in the political map in Israel, which which we'll have to wait and see how that, how that pans out.
1: Angel, thank you very much for your time.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: When allegations fly about political corruption, citizens look to the justice system to weigh in. But what if politicians aim to control the courts? It's a tactic that appears to be on the rise, particularly in Eastern Europe. In the past few years, the leadership of Poland, Hungary, and Romania have sought to juggle the judiciary for their own ends. That sparked protests and threats of intervention by the European Union to restore the rule of law. It's a story that now appears to be playing out in the Czech Republic, where every week for more than a month, tens of thousands of protesters have gathered in towns and cities across the country. The object of their anger? The country's billionaire prime minister, Andrej Babiš. Protesters believe he's using his political influence to dodge a long-standing criminal investigation.
3: So over the last five weeks, there have been um, weekly protests all across the Czech Republic. And the protests were against the government, but specifically against the prime minister, Andrei Babiš, an oligarch who has been in power since 2017.
1: Vendelin von Bredow is our European business and finance correspondent. She attended one of the protests earlier this month.
3: The biggest demonstrations were in Prague, on the Wenceslas Square and Old Town Square, the focal point of the Velvet Revolution in 1989, as well as the anti-communist revolt in 1968. So common to these protests is that at the end, all the protesters gather to sing the Czech national anthem, where my home is. And it was a beautiful, a solemn moment. And you could really feel the love for the country of the Czechs on the street, but also the concern, which is of course why they were out, the concern of where the democracy of the Czech Republic is heading to.
1: And so what what is the concern? What are these protests about?
3: People are protesting about what they see as an attempt to capture the justice system by the prime minister. He is facing criminal charges related to his alleged misuse of European Union funds some years ago, so the investigation took a long time. But he basically forced out the former justice minister, Jan Knezzynek, on the day after police recommended that he should be indicted and sent his case to the prosecutor. So the belief by the protesters is that these events were related and that Mr. Knizhenik was forced out, replaced by a loyalist, Mary Beneshova, Prime Minister Babish, of course, denies all the allegation and says he's the victim of a political witch hunt. But the concern of the protesters is that Marie Beneshova will slow down legal proceedings and possibly even prevent the prosecutor from indicting the prime minister.
1: I mean, we've, we've seen the kind of uh, meddling in the judiciary of, of this sort before in, in that part of the world.
3: Yes, that's right. Um, Prime Minister Viktor Orban in in neighbouring Hungary changed the constitution in order to diminish the influence of judges and and seemingly got away with it. And in Poland, the Polish government has tried and indeed succeeded um, similarly. So the Czech Republic is not the first country in the region trying to surely influence the judiciary only that, um, let's say, Hungary is probably already beyond the tipping point, whereas I'd say the Czech Republic is at a crossroads. And I think at the moment, the Czech Republic's democracy is functioning and vibrant and still healthy. But of course, that could change. And that's, of course, why the protesters are so concerned and thousands of them are taking to the streets, not only in Prague, which is where usually protests take place, but also in in Brno, in Ostrava, in Liberec, in, in the provinces, basically, which makes these protests a little bit unusual and shows how widespread the concerns are.
1: But is it your belief, I mean, in, in a country where political protests really did bring about some change in the form of the Velvet Revolution, do you think these protests will, will have a real influence?
3: And I wish I could say yes, but I think at the moment, Prime Minister Babisch is very firmly in the saddle Um, His party, Anno, is by far the most successful at the moment. He is the, the Berlusconi of the Czech Republic, so he controls a big chunks of the media, which makes him even more powerful. And, of course, he's a very rich man, so he can fund his political vehicle, Anno, um, with much more money than, than, than all his rivals. Plus, the uh, president, Milos Zeman, is on his side. So there's even talk that even if Babiš is indicted, Milos Zeman will pardon him and he will um, and, and, and do this quite quickly in order to, to, to save him and keep him in his job.
1: Presumably, the European parliamentary elections were a chance for people to make their feelings known. How did that play out?
3: Mr. Babish and his ANO party did well, although not quite as well as they had expected. They um, received uh, 21% of the vote, um, which was, of course, by far the most of any single party. But the opposition parties together uh, received almost 50% of the vote. So they are they are far stronger um, taken together. Um if you think about his electoral success, in spite of what's going on with the weekly protest, you mustn't forget that Mr. Babiš runs a superb marketing machine. And then, in, for instance, in anticipation of the European elections, he came up with a Trump-style red baseball cap emblazoned with silně Česko, which means strong Czechia.
1: Make America great again. And I'm asking, why not such a Silné Česko. Mm-hmm.
3: In spite of getting almost 50% of the vote at the um, European elections, generally speaking, the opposition is both weak and desperately divided. And at the moment, there is no credible challenger to the prime minister.
1: So as far as you can tell, mister Babish Babiš isn't going anywhere anytime soon.
3: I don't think Mr. Babiš will go anywhere anytime soon. He is very powerful, he's very rich, and he's a wily political operator who knows how to use his populist message that is resonating, especially in the countryside, in the in the poorer bits of the Czech Republic. And in that, he is not dissimilar to, to, to Donald Trump. There's there's a sort of a similar dynamic in, in his success.
1: Vendelin, thank you very much for your time.
3: A pleasure, Jason.
1: Noah Snyder is the Economist's Moscow correspondent. Recently though, he's been having a taste of life in Crimea and speaking to some winemakers there.
4: Rapin is a vintner in Crimea, the peninsula that Russia annexed in 2014. Uh, he launched a boutique wine brand in 2010 and has been trying to revive local winemaking traditions. He's one of a small number of boutique Crimean winemakers who've been plying their craft on the peninsula and having to contend with a uh, new set of challenges once the peninsula was annexed by Russia.
1: So hang on a minute, Noah. D- does Crimea have a, a big wine-growing history?
4: It does. And and that was actually one of the things that Russia really coveted when it took the peninsula back in 2014. Obviously, ports and, and, and geopolitics were of greater concern, but the wines were a nice bonus. During the Soviet era, central planners had used the region to essentially mass produce wine for the entire Soviet Union. They pumped out a lot, but the quality left a lot to be desired as well.
1: And so what happened to the wine industry after the annexation?
4: So the wine industry is is a great microcosm, in fact, for the economy of the peninsula as a whole. One of the first things that happened after the annexation was a wave of nationalizations of key assets in the peninsula, including two era wineries, Novoy Sviat and Masandra. The Russian government began pouring subsidies into the winemaking industry in, in Crimea, offering a lot of support for vintners who wanted to plant new vines and, and, and launch new wineries.
1: So it, it sounds as if, uh, at least for the winemakers, things have been pretty good since annexation.
4: Well, yes and no. Things haven't been all, all sweet. The upside is a larger market, the Russian market being significantly larger than the Ukrainian one. But the flip side of that is is no access to the international markets. Exporting has become impossible, and the drinking culture in Russia largely still revolves around spirits and, and beer. So winemakers are, are kind of struggling to break through same time, they're having to contend with being in a, a bit of a legal black hole as a result of Western sanctions. Banks are hesitant to service the region. There are just two state banks that, that really offer credit to local businesses. Acquiring property and holding it can also be tricky in a place where the legal system has been going through a series of transitions and, and it's unclear often who holds the rights to land.
1: Well, you, you mentioned uh, the sanctions that are on Russia. How does, how does that influence things?
4: It influences things in several ways. The most simple is by adding costs to things like acquiring supplies. Oftentimes, local businesses will set up either a parallel company in the Russian mainland or try to partner with a company that's registered in the Russian mainland in order to import supplies that they need. And on the whole, Mr. Reppin reckons that such roundabout means add an additional 15 to 20% even to, to final costs. And it's led to some occasional crises. Most recently, a bottle shortage that came as a result of one of the main factories that's been supplying glassware to the peninsula. Deciding to cut off contracts with uh, Crimean winemakers after Western shareholders installed a new director at the company. Crimean vinters hope that supplies will be restarted soon, but for now there's a bit of a bottleneck.
1: So I, I can't imagine that you visited a, a boutique winemaker and didn't try some of the wine. How is it?
4: How to say this diplomatically? It's a work in progress. There are some Crimean wines that, that have certainly moved far beyond their Soviet-era predecessors. And Mr. Reppin's winery, in fact, makes a surprisingly subtle Pinot Noir. The most interesting tasting may be uh, local sorts. There's a, a range of native grapes, grapes native to Crimea. Many of them have sort of died out or fallen out of production in, in recent decades. But local vintners like Mr. Repin are striving to revive them, and they hope redefine the reputation of Crimean wine.
1: Even if they have to be put in boxes during the bottle shortage. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Noah, thank you very much for your time.
4: Thank you for having me, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence, If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. See you back here tomorrow.
0: As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.